thank Stan for uh, leading us this morning. I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be looking at another one of the warning passages that we've been going through in the book of Hebrews. And the title of the message today is Warning. That's not the right one. All right, Warning, Proceed with Caution. Warning, Proceed with Caution. I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through verse 31. Let's read that together. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This morning, as we deal with a very difficult text, and again, it's not a passage that people preach on, really, unless you preach through books of the Bible. It's not one I would have picked out today, but it's one that we have to deal with. It's one that without it, we fail to see the whole counsel of God and we fail to understand how to view our life and how to view salvation and how to deal with the real understanding of apostasy. And so this morning, we're gonna look at three key observations of this text that hopefully will help us walk through it. Three key observations of the text. The first one we're gonna look at is we see a purposeful warning, a purposeful warning. And you may be thinking, why is it a purposeful warning? Well, it's a purposeful warning because it's not simply a passage where we learn about apostasy that does not relate to ourselves. You may think, what in the world do you mean? Well, let me back up a little bit. I, I want to look at some things because in order to get here and understand this passage, I think it's imperative, first of all, that we understand the nature of warning passages in the book of Hebrews. When we look at the book of Hebrews, we see several warning passages. To give you an idea, we see Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 3 into chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 5, really the one we're thinking of there is that passage in Hebrews chapter 6. We're thinking of the one we're in today that really a lot of people think starts in verse 19 and concludes in verse 39, and the one that we're yet to get to all the way into chapter 12. And as we look at that, it's important to understand that the, the author of Hebrews is dealing with I'll tell you what I've been doing lately. I, uh, I've gotten in a bad habit on Sunday nights. I'm so used to saying the author of Hebrews. Now I say that about every book of the Bible. And I'll be like the author of Philippians. And I'm like, well, that is Paul. 
Um, I've been the author. <laughs> so I've been saying that about every New Testament book. But this one is one we don't know the author of. So we refer to it as the author of Hebrews. But the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back because they're dealing with persecution. Again, I ask you the question, if the government came in today and said, hey, we don't have a problem with you worshiping, but if you don't agree with the state version of the church that we approve of, and if you don't understand the current uh, sexual ethics of the culture, if you don't buy into the current LGBTQ version of the Bible that we're going to adopt, if you do something different and you believe this, 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 and this, we're going to tax you 40% higher than the rest of the people in your state. Again, I wonder how would it affect you if all of a sudden your money was on the line, if all of a sudden you were at risk of losing your property, these were people who not, not only had had their property plundered, they were at risk of being martyred for knowing and following Christ. And they're tempted to say, you know what? We came out of a religious system. We came out of Judaism. Isn't Christianity just an advanced form of Judaism? Can't we just go back? And the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that the author is establishing the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus. He starts it out in chapter one. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than, than Moses. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the priesthood. He is supreme over all. And he's speaking to them about how as our great high priest, he enables us as a faithful high priest over the house, as a builder over the house, he enables us to endure. He enables us, he enables us to keep going. You see, a lot of people take a passage like we're looking at today, and they say, okay, these five warning passages point to the reality that Christians can lose their salvation. And because of that, I have thought it was necessary to give you a disclaimer as we look at this. And the, these, these disclaimers are right here. You can't read that probably, but if you can, you got really good eyes. But I'm gonna read them to you. You see, the first one, the Bible does not teach we can lose our salvation. Scripture interprets scripture. The second one, apostasy reveals no true root in the faith. If you want a cross-reference to look at that, it's 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they went out from us because it reveals that not all of them are one of us. Number three, the Holy Spirit enables true believers to endure ultimately. But I want you to focus on number four as well as number three. The Holy Spirit uses warning passages as a means of sanctification in the lives of his children. Number five, warnings serve as a call for those on the fence to come the true saving faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, how many of you have driven... Uh, I-24 towards Monteagle lately. You go up that stretch of road and that's a dangerous interstate. You go up and there's a lot of signs on the side of the road. What are those signs designed to do when you're traveling on an interstate? 
when you're traveling down a country road and there's a sign that says dangerous curb and it drops the speed limit from 40 to 25, or when you're driving and you, you can imagine the, the lanes running out. First of all, those, I was listening to a guy named Brian Borgman and I, and I agree with him on this. He says, you know, when we look at this, we gotta be careful because a lot of Christians rightfully attest to the fact that we cannot lose our, our salvation if we're truly in Christ. But what they do is they negate the very purpose that these passages are in the scripture. You see, when this was written, it wasn't designed simply to show that there's going to be apostates. It wasn't simply designed to show the true test of saving faith. That wasn't his intent. It's like some people look at these passages and they panic immediately and they can't even read the passage. When you see a speed limit sign, you shouldn't scream. And when you see a, a sign that gives you the fact that there's gonna be a curb, it's not designed to be a test of your driving. It doesn't mean that you now take that curve as fast as you can or appropriately to see if you're a good driver. No, the signs are given as a means to get you safely to your destination. In the scripture, God has designed the warning passages to be a means to get us safely to our destination. And not only a means to get us safely to our destination, but a means of grace to help us persevere. The warning passages are used by the Holy Spirit of God in many different ways. You may be here today and you're very casual in your profession of Jesus Christ. And you're gonna walk through a passage like this and it's gonna convict you, not in your faith. It's gonna convict you of your lostness outside of Christ. And God will use these very words to convict you of your need of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you today is that you believe on Jesus Christ, not intellectually affirm the claims of the gospel, but you believe on him. You trust in him. You depend on him. You may be here today, though, as a Christian, and you're very apathetic in your walk. You come to church, you know your Bible. Maybe you don't come to church. Maybe you're very casual. But today, God intends this passage to serve as a warning, not to make you panic, but as a warning, as an ex exhortation, as a call to keep on going, to keep running, to keep moving, to keep advancing, to keep on in the faith. And these are used by the Holy Spirit just like rails on a highway to keep us on the road, to keep advancing in our faith. And God has designed it to work this way. They're used as a purposeful warning. You know, when we look at this, um, we see that, I like what Borgman says. He says, the promises provide assurance of faith the warnings provide the endurance of faith. The promises point to the assurance. The warnings provide the endurance. They're a critical component of perseverance. So we start out in this passage today seeing that we have to see the importance of these texts. Let's, let's look at some of these because I want you to see 
how God has designed them. We've looked at them over and over. Look at chapter two. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. This morning, again, I ask you, we looked at it in chapter two, are you paying close attention to what you've heard? Because if you're not paying close attention to what you've heard, what do you begin to do? You begin to drift. I told you about my experience in Eleuthera with my buddy when I was 18 years old on that king-size air mattress in the Caribbean, and we started to drift, and we drifted, and we drifted, and we drifted. We drifted hundreds of yards and I'll never forget it. We were, I was asleep, and he woke up too, and he says, Barber. And I was like, what? He goes, we're a long way from the shore. And I looked up, and the people that were on the sand, they looked like little dots. I was like, Tommy, we better get after it, man. We better get going. We had drifted away from where we were. How many today? Can you relate with me in your Christian journey? There's been times as a pastor, as a minister, I've been counseling people. I've been preaching sermons week after week, but I began to drift away from what I have heard. I begin to drift in my personal life, and God uses passages like these not only to call me back, but to call you back. They're serious, sincere warnings. Look at chapter three, verse six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Our endurance ultimately is evidence that we are in the faith, that we are ultimately in the faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to this, and, and I love reading these in sequence because you begin to see the heart of while he's writing to these Christians, establishing the supremacy of Jesus, establishing the greatness of our Lord, he says in chapter three, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And sadly and, and shockingly, we can all relate, and some of the people that have done this in your past, maybe ex-Sunday school teachers, maybe people that were former pastors. It may be friends that you knew in the faith, friends you went to Christian college with. The reality of apostasy is real. People abandon the faith. They walk away. They have a deconstruction of their faith, which basically means they commit apostasy. You see, but the Christian is not to read this and say, well, that doesn't apply to me because the apostates are the one that reads this verse. You see, when we look at these passages, we don't remove ourselves. We have to remember the Holy Spirit is using this as a means of his grace to do what? To ensure our safe arrival. And not only to ensure our safe arrival, but to ensure our endurance. You're thinking, but how does that work? That's mysterious to me, but I know that God intended it to be a part of our sanctification, to be a part of our growth. We get into chapter three, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, if we, this is just a, a counter argument to those who would say that true believers can lose their salvation. I believe this slam dunks it. 
You see, those people would say, well, no, we shared in Christ at one time, but then we walked away. And that's not what the author says. He goes, no, we have come to share in Christ if we finish, if we hold fast to the end. And what is that encouragement to do? It's to encourage us to keep on in the faith. Hebrews chapter four and verse two, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Isn't this convicting? It's not about hearing sermons. It's not about being good people. It's not about being ethical. It it ultimately is, the reality is, Hebrews is teaching us that We need a great high priest. We need a representative. We need a mediator. We need one to fill the gap. In and of ourselves, we are lost and condemned and we face the judgment of God. But in Christ Jesus, he came. He went through the veil. He went into the most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary. He accomplished our salvation once and for all. And for those now in Christ Jesus, we are to follow after him. We are to hear his word with faith. We can hear the word with a lack of faith, can't we? We can hear the word and it just literally, it just hits our head and falls off. It's like rain falling on a tin roof. It just beats on it, but it never comes through. It just hits the roof. It just hits the head. It hits the part of us that's not receptive to the truth. And what does he say here? He says, make sure you're not like unbelieving Israel. When they were confronted with the good news of the word of God, they rejected it and didn't hear it by faith. We came all the way down to chapter six. And what does he say there? And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The next one we see, Hebrews chapter 12. We've not yet to get there, but notice what he says. It's very consistent with all of these themes. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then we see later on, We see, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. On and on and on we see this. So we start out today, and we see that this is a purposeful warning. This is a warning not for people that, you know, it's like, have we ever done this before? Have you ever thought, wow, I'm so glad so-and-so's here today. They really need to hear this. Have you thought that before? I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that. I'm like, I am so glad they're here. And it's like, I'm the one that needs to hear it more than anybody in the room. And so be careful with that. Today, God, you may be thinking, but I'm a true believer. I'm following after him. I'm assured by his promise. Well, today, submit to his purpose of these warning passages in enabling you to continue to endure. That's my challenge to you. The second observation that we're going to see today is very sobering in these last two points, a consequential rejection, a consequential rejection. When we look at verses 25, 26, 
and we go to the end of the passage, we see a pattern of rejection and we also see a pattern of judgment. And it's important to just define what is the rejection that we're looking at in these verses? What is the rejection that's taking place here? Let's look at them. The first one in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It's interesting because there's a rejection that is taking place here. And, and, and immediately this has caused much trouble to much of church history because people have taken verse 26 to mean that if I have ever sinned deliberately, and I don't know about you, but we all have sinned deliberately in the last 24 hours. We've all sinned deliberately, most likely this morning. You think about, um, you know, from the guy who cuts you off to your impulse to getting back at all cost. I would never know anything about that. But, and, and, we, and, we, and we laugh because, I mean, we can relate to our fallenness, but we think about the seriousness of our deliberate sins. But I want to caution you here. The emphasis here is not on a sin that's deliberate. It's on a habitual nature of deliberate living. It's a deliberate lifestyle. It's a deliberate rejection. It's a deliberate resistance to the things of God. You see, when you look at this, um, immediately I was thinking about 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, there's a passage that's troubled a lot of Christians as well. But I think when we understand the grammar of it a little bit, it helps. 1 John chapter 3 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now notice what he says next. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Now, lest we forget, 1 John chapter 1 says, if anyone says they're without sin, the truth of God is not in him. And then he goes on in two verses later, and he says, if we confess our sins, it's present tense. If we continually confess our sins, speaking of the need for consistent confession and repentance in the day-to-day -day life of the Christian. So he's not speaking about a person who's sinning at, at, at times in his life. He's speaking about habitual sin. He's speaking about a lawlessness. He's speaking about a lifestyle of sin. And in the context, he's speaking about a rejection of Christ. You see, the question I want to ask you this morning as we go through this that we have to ask, are you sensitive to the word of God? Are you sensitive to the word of God? Another question, are you pliable? Are you pliable? Uh, another one, are you repentant? I want to ask you a thoughtful question here. I want you to think, when was the last time that the word of God influenced you in your day-to-day -day behavior, where your behavior through the power of the Spirit was bended and made pliable into conformity with what God desired you to be doing in your life? That's a question we need to reflect on. Because daily, what is one of the things that the word of God does? 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, 
all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for instruction. And then what's the next word? He says, and also for reproof and then for correction. So the word of God reveals to me not only the truth of how to live, the word of God reveals to me when I'm out of line with that truth. Now, now ask yourself, when's the last time that the word of God revealed to me, me being out of line with his truth. When's the last time in your marriage God did that? When's the last time in your parenting God did that? When's the last time teenager in your life towards your parents God did that? You see, what's happening here is that the people that he is describing here are dangerously, deliberately unpliable. They're deliberately unrepentant. You see, you've got a, there's not a sensitivity. There's not a repentant attitude. They're on dangerous ground. They're hearing the word of God regularly without repentance. You see, if we're going to church, if we're doing Bible study, and the word of God is not affecting us in our day-to-day, we have to wake up. It would be as if the author of Hebrews would say, come on, man, go on. Go on with your faith. Don't, don't get lulled in the sleep. Don't drift away from the truth. He's calling them. He's saying, he goes back to what we just looked at, and I want to go back because it's so, it's so relative to what we're looking at. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And don't read it like that none of the other people in here that have the chance of apostasy. No, that you may not drift away. That you may not be hardened by the deception of sin. This morning, it's, uh, it's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord standing in the need of prayer. It's God, make me sensitive to your warning of never being lulled into some type of neutral ground. You know, like sometimes I'm very, I I joke too much with my kids sometimes, I fear. And I always am, I'm terrible at putting gas in my car, y'all. I'll just be real with you, you know. And uh, I typically put gas in my Honda when there's like, about five miles left on the thing. And, and I know there's like 25 extra miles you get after zero. And so uh, a lot of times, uh, Abigail and Will, they notoriously say, Dad, how many miles you got? And there's been many times I'll say zero. And they go, what? And I'll be like, I'm fine. I got at least 18 more miles. I'm good. And, and, and what I'll do to them, though, is really cruel because I will, I, I will put it in neutral. And I'll be like, oh, no. And they'll be like, dad, 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 don't joke. And I'll be like, y'all, I can't. And I'll hit the, hit the thing. And they'll be like, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They'll start laughing. They'll be like, dad, don't do that to us. And I'll get to the pump. But I'll put it in neutral. When you get it in neutral, nothing's happening. You're coasting. You're coasting. Be real with yourself today. Are you coasting? Are you coasting with the things of God? Y'all look nice, but are you coasting in your heart? What God is calling us to 
is not an easy believism, an easy, feel-good, cultural, religious experience where we go to church with nice-looking people on a nice Sunday and hear a nice message and go back into the workforce. He's calling us to understand the implications of who Christ is and his great priesthood and to understand the necessity as Christians to live full force in submission to Christ. He says, look, you move forward in this last verse here in Hebrews, and what is he saying? He says, for we have come to share in Christ. You know, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the question today is, are we hardening our hearts at the teaching and the reception of God's word? They had received the truth. You remember back in Hebrews 6, we saw that this was dangerous because the people in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, they were described as people who had been enlightened, who had tasted, who had shared in the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the goodness of the word of God. You're thinking, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. Sounds like they're really spiritually active people. They're really getting it. But what was the very clue that they had not received the truth? It was in Hebrews 6, verse 7 and 8. Look what he says. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. And what does that bring up in our minds? Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus spoke about what? He spoke about the shallow heart. As one commentary said, he spoke about the the, the immediate signs of life, but no root. When the afternoon sun comes, the plant withers and dies. When one hears the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. It's people warned here. They receive the word of God, but it ultimately does not produce fruit because it's not received on good soil. It's received, it's rejected, they're unrepentant. And then look what he does in in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has what? Trampled underfoot the son of God. You see, when we look at these verses here, what we're seeing is, we're seeing this in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately, I think he's describing some of these very people tempted to go back to Judaism. They're rejecting, they're unrepentant, they're not seeking the Lord, they're falling away from his word, and it's a warning to us as well. But he goes on now, and in verse 29, look at how he describes it. Three different ways he describes the rejection of their hearts. He says, they trampled, they profaned, and they outraged. Now let's look at these one by one. The first one, it says they trampled underfoot the son of God. What does that mean? It literally means to tread or to trample. They treat the word of God with contempt. It's used in Matthew 7 when it says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they what? Trample them. Think of the image. Pigs trampling, or dogs trampling over these things. Are you trampling underfoot the Son of God? Are you treating his word with contempt? Are you treating the Son of God with contempt? 
I, I thought about this is the idea that you do not revere him. You do not see him for who he reveals himself to be. You remember when Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi and he says, who do men say that I am? And the disciples are there and they're like, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. What, what, the people that would see Christ and they would say, no, you're not who you say you are. You're just someone like Elijah. You're just like one of the prophets. You're just some other godly religious man. What were they in ultimate doing? They were trampling underfoot the son of God. They were denying his true identity. They were denying him. What is the second one that is describing their rejection? Not only did they trample underfoot the Son of God, they profaned the blood of the covenant. Now, now this is interesting. They profaned the blood of the covenant. In the New American Standard, here's how it reads. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And listen to how they translate it here. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. The word here for profaned, or regarded as unclean can also mean common. Is it special or is it common? Is this significant, the blood of the covenant, or is it common? They look at what Christ has done and they regard it as unclean or simply common. I like what Al Mohler says. He says, to treat the blood of the covenant as profane essentially means not to believe that the blood of Christ can affect purification for sins. And, and, but then he says something really fascinating and, and one of the harder interpretive parts of this passage. He says, trampled underfoot the son of God. And then he says, they what? Profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And that's where people say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This has to be a Christian because it says they profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And earlier in the chapter, he just said we were sanctified you know, it was a one-for-all type situation. How, how could this be a one-time sanctification if these people who were sanctified are now trampling the Son of God and are profaning the blood of his covenant? Well, let's look at this a little closer. One thing we have to keep in mind is, is the primary meaning of sanctified is the idea of being set apart being set apart. One man said, this might trouble the reader, but the difficulty disappears when we remember that the writer is addressing himself to the professing Christian church made up of saved and unsaved. And that the idea here is by which he professed to be sanctified. Another angle here is some people think that by what happened, these people were if you're an apostate and you never have come truly in the faith, you've experienced Christian baptism. And when you experience Christian baptism, it is a public sign to the world that you have been set apart unto Christ. If that's not true, in a sense, by your false profession, 
you have publicly been set apart unto God, but it was never a real deal. But there's another option. The other option is that if you read this passage and you start back, it's fascinating. He there's another way. He said, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? The he might be referring to the Son of God. Now, this is interesting because the person who really made this a popular interpretation was John Owen. John Owen, and near the end of his life, wrote a commentary, one of the largest commentaries that anyone's ever written on the book of Hebrews. And in that commentary, he makes this statement. He says, it is Christ himself that is spoken of who was sanctified and dedicated unto God to be an eternal high priest by the blood of the covenant, which he offered unto God, as I have showed before, he says. And then he goes on, that precious blood of Christ wherein or whereby he was sanctified and dedicated. So in this sense, we often think of sanctification and we think of it as like a progressive growth. But remember, he's saying not that way. He's saying this sanctification represents the dedication of his sacrifice to his father. It it represents his being set apart. And he says, that precious blood of Christ wherein or whereby he was sanctified and dedicated unto God as the eternal high priest of the church. This, here it is, this they esteemed an unholy thing that is such as would have no such effect as to consecrate him unto God and his office. Wow, I think he's all, I I think this is right. I think what he's saying here is exactly what Owen's saying because look at the passage in Hebrews 5. The the author of Hebrews says, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that they would look at this sacrifice and they would say, no, no, no. That is not a special sacrifice unto the Father. That is a common one. You know, another passage here would be Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. What does it say here? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And do you see how serious it is if we would ever look at this and say, nope, not for me, not for me. And who's his audience? His audience is people who are tempted to do this very thing, to walk away and look at the sacrifices common, to walk away and look at this is not some special consecration under the Father, but to see it as simply one other death, one other cruel crucifixion, but not something that's truly effective and makes men right with God. The last one he mentions here in the text, 
He has outraged the spirit of grace. What is the three? I mean, he's deliberately sinning. That's rejection. He's trampled underfoot the son of God. That's rejection. He's profaned the blood of the covenant. That's rejection. He's outraged the spirit of grace. It means to use reproachfully, to treat with despite or reproach. I mean, this is serious stuff. This is serious, serious stuff. You know, and look at verse 29. You know, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who was trampled underfoot, the son of God, profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. This morning, as we look at, uh, I wanted to go one more, but we're going to close her out today. I I want you to think about something. You may be thinking, you know, that's sobering because uh, this is serious, serious stuff. The, the, last, the last point we're going to jump into next time is a terrifying judgment. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's like uh, receive the son and receive life. Reject the son and face the most dread and horror that the world has ever known. You face the judgment and the wrath of God. That's sobering reality. This morning, I call you Christian to consider something. I want you to consider this morning your heart and your response unto God. If this is the attitude, if they would reject and insult the spirit of grace, if they would trample underfoot the Son of God, if they would reproach him in all of these ways, what should be our response this morning to the living God? Oh, Christian, what should be our response to Christ? What should be our response to Christ? May we never treat him as common. May we never reject him. May we never be apathetic. May we never live in private sin. May we never walk in our lives without dealing with the reality of who Christ is. This morning, I know this may sound like a strange way of thinking about it, but this is my mind simple. I was thinking about, you know, if, uh, if you got a scale of one to 10 and number one represents outright rejection of the son of God. And number 10 represents total submission unto Christ. Where are you at on the spectrum this morning? What would you say? Where are you at? This morning, are you drifting from what you've heard? This morning, it's the kindness of God. I told you before, there's been times in my life where uh, I can't explain it to you but I've been drifting in my faith and I've sat under biblical preaching and God has literally shook me in a way that I couldn't explain to others because it was some, wasn't some type of visible phenomenon that hit me. But the Spirit of God took his word and, and, and rattled my heart in such a purifying way as to bring me to a place of repentance and confession. This morning, church, the Lord calls out to us in his word. And isn't it amazing how the only way the church stays purified is through 
the word of the truth, through the power of the spirit. And this morning, the word calls us. Uh, Kyle read earlier, James 1, 21 and 22. I want to re- look at that with you as we wrap things up. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You know, we looked at this years ago in James. This is speaking to the Christian. And I think what he's speaking about at the end of the verse is not their initial salvation. Salvation in the scriptures looked at as past, present, future. We have been saved we are being saved. We will be saved. I think what he's telling the Christian is saying, Christian, walk putting aside the sin in our life. Because in reality, in Christ Jesus, you put off the old man at your conversion. Now live daily in light of the reality that the old man's been put off. And rather than, you know, you've been tempted to do it, guys. I know the ladies don't do this, but you got to go to the gym and you don't have any clean clothes, and you go to that laundry basket and start sniffing. And you sniff, and and a lot of times you you get the wrong indication because it doesn't seem that bad, but you get to the gym and people start looking at you funny when you walk by. You know, it, it would be silly this morning if you got up and instead of going to your closet to get out a clean shirt, you said, you know what? What's some dirty stuff in there? What's in the laundry room? I wanna see what I got in there. And under those wet towels, all kinds of stuff. You pull out a button up and you're like, oh, this looks good. I'll spray right guard on it and throw it in the dryer. And in 30 seconds, it'll be good as new. And you put on that old shirt. What's happening there? You're not living in light of the truth of who you are. You see, in Christianity, it's knowing who you are in Christ Jesus. Paul says that in Christ, we've put off the old, we've put on the new, and now all the writers of the New Testament, they have a similar theme when they tell us, don't put on those things that are unbecoming of who you are. But in light of the fact that you have a great advocate, in light of the fact that Jesus is your high priest, Live in light of who he is and don't live like those outside of him who would reject him, who would push him away, who would literally insult him. Christian, more than anyone in the universe, submit your heart and your life to him. Receive, it means receive with excitement, with meekness. It speaks of meekness and humility, it's a lowliness received with meekness. The implanted word is the word that God has put within you. And it is that word that is able to deliver you, to rescue you, to rescue you from what? From the propensity that we would have in and of ourselves to drift. But that word is a rescuing word. It delivers us through the power of Christ. He then finishes it and says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So this morning, would you bow your head? I want to ask you a question. Are you simply a hearer of the word this morning? Are you like the person who looks in the mirror? You see what you look like, but you walk away and you immediately forget what you just saw? But by the grace of God this morning, Christian, 
receive the warning that God has sovereignly, providentially put in your life this morning by no accident. Receive it with submission of heart. Receive it with a submissive spirit. Receive it as far opposite as this attitude of rejection. Receive it with humility. And this morning, by the grace of God, may the word of God not only reprove but correct our hearts. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that it's only by the power of Christ that we can endure. That, Lord, we are in desperate need of a faithful high priest. And, Lord, through the work of Jesus Christ, you've provided everything we need. And, Lord, now through the ministry and the presence of your Holy Spirit, we are enabled for the first time to walk with you, to submit to you, to present our bodies. Lord, thank you for your kindness. And Lord, thank you that even as we have this propensity at times to wonder that you use your word, you use the means of grace to lovingly call us to continue on, to keep going, to not be apathetic and not get stuck in neutral, but to keep moving. And Lord, we know from your word that to keep moving implies this ongoing confession and repentance. So Lord, I pray that would happen even now as we close this service. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that thinks, you know what? I never knew the son of God. I've never truly come to Christ. I pray today, Lord, they'd hear your good news and they'd believe on the one who died in their place and they would receive forgiveness of sins. They would walk with you and know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.